Absolutely. And I think that's you pretty on the, much on the same page. And 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 uh, let's see. OK. And I'm live on my YouTube channel. I'm streaming. And those of you that are tuning in, I'm going to be doing a teaching on Hebrews, the first chapter. Uh, and I'm going to use the work by Dr. Daniel Seagraves as a guide to go through it. I don't hopefully offend anybody by seeming by being so elementary in my approach, but I do want to uh, go by it in a way that despite where every person may be coming from, they are ensured of having a very thorough or detailed understanding of what Dr. Seagraves is saying. And the book that I'm using is Hebrews Better Things. There is a part one and two, and it is a reading requirement for ministers in the United Pentecostal Church for licensure. Uh, and I enjoy Dr. C. Graves. He is not the most exuberant preacher, but I think he's a very smart man and uh, therefore brings merit to listening to him. Uh, so Hebrews. So the first part that we're going to look at is going to be in chapters one of and he's going to look at verses four all the way to chapter two at verse 18. And so let me see. I'm going to go back here. I'm going to make sure I pull up my thing about computers. OK, here we go. Sometimes, as I said before, me and technology, sometimes we have a love-hate relationship. So, okay. All right. There we go. All right. The intended recipients of this letter were all well-versed in the teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures, apparently by means of the Septuagint, which would be a Greek translation rendered uh, approximately 250 B.C., that a new covenant would one day replace the covenant Israel had with God from the time of Moses, Moses's venture up Mount Sinai. God never intended the Old Testament to be permanent. One of his chief purposes was to bring Israel to the Messiah. After it had served this purpose, it retained no active function. And one of the scriptural uh, citations that Dr. Seagraves gives, of course, is Galatians 3. Verses 19 through 25, Romans 10 and 4, Colossians 2, verses 14 through 17. The need to replace the old covenant with a new covenant was made obvious by the people of Israel's breach of the former covenant, as cited in Jeremiah 11, verses 1 through 10. The author of Hebrews quoted Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, to prove the termination of the old covenant and its replacement. The new covenant, as described in Ezekiel 36, seen in verses 25 through 27, would be superior to the old covenant in at least three ways. The first way that it would be superior would be is that it offers a new record. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, as shown in Ezekiel 36 and 25. In New Covenant terms, this is justification by faith, by means of this wonderful provision of the New Covenant, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to the account of the believer, so that the believer stands before God completely free from any record of sin. The second way that it is superior, or that it refutes, or that it brings these ideas, is that it offers a new heart. He quotes Ezekiel 36, 26, where it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In terms of the new covenant, this is regeneration. The use of the word heart is a common Hebrew idiom referring not to the physical organ, 
but to the inner person or better yet the immaterial or spiritual person as opposed to the outer person, the physical body. By means of regeneration, a believer is actually born again in a very real way. He becomes a new person and thus a partaker of the divine nature. A person who is regenerated by the Holy Spirit has overcome the spiritual death that passed upon every man as a result from Adam's sin. He offers in the third uh, portion of his argumentation, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them as Ezekiel 36, 27 makes clear. This is the sanctification of the new covenant. Sanctification is the natural and necessary outworking of regeneration and justification. It is the process of believers becoming what they are as they daily mature into a greater conformity to the character of Christ. And of course, Hebrews 10 and 10 is a good reference for that. So in the first major section of this letter, the writer of Hebrews discussed numeral additional ways in which the covenant is better than the old covenant. Chiefly, the new covenant is better because it was established unilaterally by Jesus, who is better than the prophets through whom God spoke during the days of the old covenant, as we will explore in verses one through three. He is also superior to the angels through whom the old covenant was given to uh, uh, through Moses in uh, chapter one, excuse me, as he will talk about in verses four, all the way through chapter two at verse four. The new covenant offers an intentionally superior revelation of God, which from an apostolic viewpoint, we believe in Jesus is actually God himself in human existence. Thus, Jesus is better than Moses, who was highly esteemed by the readers of this letter. He is better than Joshua. The rest, uh, Jesus' offer is vastly superior than the rest of the founder of Israel and all of the other great patriarchs. Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, to whom even Levi paid tithes through Abraham. The inferiority of the old covenant is demonstrated by the inferiority of its tabernacle when compared to the heavenly tabernacle after which it was patterned. And finally, the sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ to establish the new covenant was incomparably superior to the sacrifices of the old covenant. So from this point, we're going to go into verses one and three, where we're going to deal with the author's exposition. And I'm going to read verses one through three. And for those who are following along on YouTube, on Facebook, and definitely my dear friends on Clubhouse, what you will notice is that as reading through verses one through three, that the translation that Dr. C. Graves employs is going to be based on the New King James Version, which I'm not saying one is better than the other, but some may want to know which version I'm reading. So he goes on in verse one. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So let us look at verse number one. The writer of Hebrews begins his letter by immediately contrasting the revelation of God in previous times and thus under the old covenant with the revelation of God in current times and thus under the new covenant. 
This sets the tone for the entire letter. The things characterizing the old covenant as wonderful as they were are inferior to the things characterizing the new covenant in which believers stand. So within verse one, and we see right off the bat that we are being given the context that there is an obvious compare and contrast between the old and the present. And one of the reasons for this is because that we understand from reading uh, contextually in the historical setting that there was a great number of Jews who were about to experience pressure uh, to force them to go into the old covenant or better yet to go back into the old uh, temple ceremonial uh, ordinances. But the idea here is that the writer is trying to encourage them on the basis that what they have is much better than what they had before. Now, the reference to sundry times and diverse manners involves a play on words in the Greek language, polymeros at many times and polytropos in many ways. As you can see, they even sound alike. This is not uncommon in the New Testament literature. Polymeros couldn't be translated in many parts or in many portions. Poly means many, right? And meros has to do with a part as contrasted to the whole. The idea is that God's revelation in days prior to speaking through his son and thus prior to the new covenant was incomplete. Wow, how do you like that? Though he gave many portions of his revelation and though he spoke in various ways, his ultimate revelation awaited the coming of Jesus Christ. We can identify eight covenants in scripture. The Edemic Covenant, uh, Genesis 1, 28 through 31. The, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Adamic Covenant, uh, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Noahic, the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9, 1 through 27. The Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. The Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 20. The Palestinian Covenant, Deuteronomy 27 through 30. Uh, and the, uh, the Davidic covenant, second Samuel, I'm sorry, seven, eight through 17 and the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now, what's interesting here is that for most who know that Dr. Seagrace is a oneness Pentecostal. And I, I always get tickled sometimes, like when I, when I hear some, especially my dear friends, like brother Walter, who have a reform approach to understanding the scripture that using covenantal language is not opposed to a uh, classic oneness theology. And as you see with Dr. Seagraves, he very much um, prefers the language of covenantalism, or he has a lot of uh, leanings in describing the relationships of God where we would, maybe in a more classical Pentecostal setting, we would say dispensations. But Dr. Seagraves definitely has more of a covenantal leaning, which I would see myself more as a covenantal dispensationalist uh, if I had to describe myself, because I think this is more accurately describes the relationship that God has had with man throughout history. Now, some of the covenants are conditional, bilateral, requiring the faithfulness of two parties, God and one or more persons, for their fulfillment. Some are unconditional, which would be unilateral, requiring only the faithfulness of God. Although the word covenant is not used in the context of each of the eight, we use the term if the characteristics of a covenant are present. The new covenant presented in Hebrews as superior to all previous revelations of God is by definition other portion of the overall revelation, and it is itself predicated in the Hebrew scriptures. 
but it is far surpassing all other covenants and thus all other portions of the revelation of God that an entire section of inspired scripture, the New Testament is given to its presentation and development. In days prior to the revelation of God through his son, he spoke to the fathers who would be in the context, the patriarchs by the prophets in various ways. Now notice, we've already established that there's a comparing contrast that's being laid, how God did it then and how God is doing it now. Uh, he spoke to them uh, in ways that were very different. He spoke to them, but not limited to uh, straightforward methods of human speech, like in the theophanies that God would speak to, to Moses in dramatic symbolic elements, like with Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some of the other prophets, parables like in Nathan and David, uh, in written communication in a variety of literary forms in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, as we know as history, poetry, or apocalyptic literature. By definition, it's important to understand that a prophet, or better yet, the one that God spoke through or used in those times, is by definition essentially a spokesman for God. Uh, this can be proven by a look at Hebrews 7 and 1. Thus, those who deliver the message of God to the fathers were the prophets, regardless of their method of delivery. So let's establish this. If they are delivering a message to God, one thing is to be understood that they are a prophet uh, in that sense, if this is their vocation or calling. In addition to the prophets delivering the message of God in a variety of ways, God spoke to the prophets themselves in a wide variety of ways. These included dreams, visions, and audible voices. So notice those through me, well, some of those three mediums that God spoke to man in. He spoke to them through dreams, visions, and audible voices. Now, this is important because these are the uh, mediums through which God communicates. And so thus, when you see some of the Old Testament writing that talks about the word of the Lord came, it's not talking about a second hypostasis of divine nature uh, that some would see as a second person in the Godhead. But what this is describing is the medium through which the Lord spoke. So when it says the word of the Lord came, this is essentially saying the message of the Lord, whether that message came through a dream, whether that message came through a vision, or whether that message came through an audible voice, this is simply describing that the word of the Lord came, not that this is a different person that is also the Lord. So I just thought I would throw that in there for free. So this verse, which is verse one, declares the authenticity of the message that is proclaimed by the Old Testament prophets through the manner of God's revelation to them is very uh, varied. And though no revelation given to the Hebrew prophets was complete and the final revelation, when they spoke, they were speaking essentially on behalf of God. This certifies the Old Testament as inspired by God as attested to in Second Peter, the first chapter, verses 20 through 21. 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 and Acts 1.16. So let us go a little bit further in verse 2. A first century Jewish reader would have understood the reference to these last days as meaning the final days. And these are somewhat interchangeable synonymous phrases that are used. If God has spoken by his son, or better yet, if God has spoken by his son in these last days, it means there is no further or more advanced revelation to come. And of course, this is meaning the primary regenerative 
or better yet, the salvific message. Now, by me being a continuationist, I do believe in the sense that God still speaks, but I don't believe this is like an incorporate speaking or that God is uh, giving out new books of the Bible or things like that. Anybody who says, I'm going to write the first epistle to Alabama, well, they may be taking the time to write a letter to you, but it's it's not a universally binding uh, word as we would see in the apostles or those who were with them in their authority. But what we see that is germane of these last days is the revelation that God has given to us through the person personal work of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in St. John 14 and 10, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does the works. Praise the Lord. The translator supplied the pronoun he is. The Greek text contains no pronoun, nor does it contain the definite article. The words in, I'm sorry, my computer is slipping again because I'm using all my notes to help me to go because I'm getting older here. Let's see, lost my place. Let me see. Don't you hate when that happens? Uh, okay, because I want to make sure I go over this in detail. One moment, computer. All right. Okay. There we go. So sundry times, we talked on that. Okay. So the New Testament revelation that we have is superior, as I stated, that what we see within this, the development and the placement of Christ, uh, him being better than all the others, that he is in a better place because this revelation uh, is far superior than any revelation we see given in the Old Testament. Uh, because this is the complete picture of the will of God. And I cited St. John 14 and 10. And as I cited the end, so the same preposition in describes both the prophets and the son as spokesmen for God, but the superiority of this message delivered through the son, as well as the identity of the son himself, dramatically sets the final revelation apart from the former. So what you're going to notice as this text goes forward, there's going to be a continual building of this revelation as opposed to that revelation. Verses two through three list seven characteristics of Jesus Christ. Verse two lists two of the seven. He is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the worlds were made. So let's look at first the heir of all things. Now, the incarnation was necessary to provide a qualified heir for all God originally intended human beings to possess. Adam's failure in the Garden of Eden disqualified him and all his offspring from receiving the eternal blessings of God. The banning of humanity from the tree of life illustrates the blocked access that resulted from Adam's sin, Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, succeeded in reversing the damaging effects of the sin of Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 50. The good news for believers is that they are joint heirs with Christ, meaning simply that all that belongs to Christ rightfully belongs to those who are in Christ. Those who, by virtue of Christ's atoning work, have become the children of God. Wow, what a wonderful premise. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. And that was Romans 8, verses 16 through 17. 
The all things of this Christ is air apparently include all God intended humanity to enjoy from the beginning. This seems to involve some kind of dominion over all creation as seen in Genesis 1:28. We do not know that the present sin cursed creation will one day we all excuse me we do know rather that this present creation will be judged and purged but it gives us a moment of uh, thought to think about all that God had planned for us in the original setting. Those who are included in the first resurrection, which seems to involve not only the tribulation martyrs, but also the rapture church, are privileged to reign with Christ uh, in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Now, this is the second part, one of the scriptures that he's going to give of Christ, which I think is going to be very interesting. Uh, and usually is a point of scripture that is weaponized, I, I would say, uh, against one as believers, is as he through whom the worlds were made. Now, let's see what Dr. Seagrace has to say on this. Jesus is the one through whom also he made the worlds, Hebrews 1 and 2. The Greek preposition translated through, which would be by KJV is dia, which is in the genitive case, as here carries the idea by means of. Since the emphasis in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is on the incarnation, and the incarnation did not pre-exist the conception of, in Mary's womb, the point cannot be that Jesus, as God manifests in the flesh, created all things. The creation predicated the incarnation. The idea of an agent being involved in creation brings to mind John 1, verses 1 through 3, where John declared the word, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made, New King James Version. But there is no suggestion here that the word is a separate or separate entity from God. And though logos, which is word, was used in Greek philosophy during the first century to describe the reason as the impersonal controlling principle of the universe, we may be sure that John was not using it in that sense, for he attributed deity to the word, as we seen in John 1 and 1. Doubtless, John, a Hebrew, used logos as the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word debar. And I think many of us who are in a lock with many of those who have different theologies are very used to hearing that argument for debar, debar being used. For God created by his spoken word. There is no hint in Genesis 1 that the words God spoke in creation are to be identified separately from him for they are utterances or an expression of his very person. Thus, from my concept, I can say is that the bar or the word of God is pretty much his self-disclosure or his revelation of himself. That when you talk about the word of God, it is the revelation of God and what it's dealing with. In John's terms, God's word was eternal. His word was with him from eternity and his word was divine. In the phrase theos and hologos, the word was God, theos is an anauthor, anauthorous predicate nominative that attributes essence or quality to the subject logos. John's point was to declare the deity of the logos. John personified the word and reiterated his eternity, John 1 and 2. He declared the role of the word in creation, John 1 and 3, God created by his word. Then John reported that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what's interesting there, when you look at that personification of God in the Old Testament, what I always think is interesting to look at 
is that there is something called the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament, which deals with the personification of divine attributes, which I think John being a Hebrew, especially in the first century context, which would make him contemporaneous with gentlemen like Philo, that I don't think it was just a far stretch that John was already using an existing Hebraic thought process to communicate the divinity of the Christ. The subject here is the same as in Hebrews 1, the incarnation. Just as the rite of Hebrews used begotten in the context of the, incarn uh, in the incarnation, Hebrews 1 and 5, so did John. John is his own best interpreter of what he meant by word. In his first letter addressing the same subject in his attack against Scipio Gnosticism, which was essentially a denial of the genuineness of Jesus's humanity, John further defined the word as the word of life, that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, which was quoted from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This phrase is in perfect harmony with John's previous statement, in him, the word was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1 and 4. In simplest terms, the word is the very life of God. In the incarnation, God's life is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living God made known in genuine, complete, and authentic human existence. John did not suggest that the prior to the incarnation, the word had such radical individuality as to be separate from God. In Hebrew thought, since there is only one God, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, and since the word is essentially deity, the only identification that we can give to the word is that he is God. That the word was with God does not imply that we have a separate hypostasis that makes some type of God unit, uh, as some would uh, maybe try to project. But it's simply a way of going, how can we say, speaking in an indirect manner of the true deity of who that word was. But in the incarnation, when the word was made flesh, humanity was added uh, with an inseparable way with deity, the resultant identification as the son of God. The term son is exclusively incarnational from a oneness worldview. Whenever we speak of son to be a legitimate son, there are characteristics of sonship, uh, which would include that you have to be begotten. So thus, the point is made by the writer of Hebrews is that the same as uh, we see demonstrated in John and also even by Paul in Colossians 1.16. God created all things by his word and the son is the word made flesh, John 1.3 and verse 14. There is no suggestion that prior to the incarnation, the word was as the son. Though it may seem at first that the word son here is pre-incarnational reference since he is the one through whom also God made the worlds. The statement that God has in these last days spoken to us by his son, which contrasts with God's prior communication through the prophets, indicates grammatically that God has not spoken by his son prior to these last days. So one of the most unique approaches that we understand from a oneness hermeneutic of reading Hebrews 1 is that the speaking of and through the Son is unique and intrinsically bound to the last days. For if we say that God spoke through his Son in the last days, this is one of the same as the saying that God has not spoken uh, in this way. And, and it kind of throws off the language that the writer of Hebrews should have said. He should have said, well, God spoke through the prophets 
and uh, and through his son in the last days. And guess what? He did the same thing in these last days. Well, that's not what he said. He makes a clear compare and contrast, which we make clear through the usage of the Greek words that we described earlier in this study. Thus, when the right of Hebrews asserted that the son is the one through whom also he, God, made the worlds, he meant the one who is now incarnate is the creator. But in his pre-incarnate state, he was not known as the son. He was the word of God by which God created as the word of God. He was as closely identified with God as any human's word is identified with him. As the word of life, he was as closely identified with God as a human's life is identified with him. Just as no one's word or life has any identity or existence apart from the person himself, so we can make no attempt to identify the word apart from God or to proclaim his existence separately from God. The personification of God's word is a figure of speech just like the personification of his wisdom seen in Proverbs 8. Let's, let us go to verse 3. Verse 3 lists another five characteristics of Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, and again, it's important to remember that in verse 2, it gives two characteristics, but in this setting, it, uh, in verse 3, it gives five characteristics. He is, first characteristics, the brightness of God's glory, characteristic 2 in verse 2, the express image of God's person, Characteristic three in verse two, the one who upholds all things by his powerful word. Characteristic number four in verse two, the one who has purged our sins. And characteristic five in verse two, the one who is now reigning with all authority. All of these attributes depend and demand the incarnation, which would be the manifestation of God and authentic and complete, although sinless humanity. That is, Jesus qualifies for these descriptions because he is only God revealed or known to us in the incarnation. Let's look at the one of the first titles that we're going to see explored in verse two. The descriptive terms used of Christ in this passage indicate strongly the impossibility of separating him from God. He is God made visible in an authentic human existence. The word brightness refers to the, uh, the, uh, the, the, how can you say, a flood of replendent, uh, excuse me, replendent light or radiance. Jesus Christ is actually God shining brightly into the world, uh, which would be what this word brightness would mean. The word translated brightness has to do not with a mere reflection, but with a shining out. So this is important to look at from a directional standpoint. This isn't just talking about, oh, it's just bouncing back on us, but this is showing that it is from Jesus Christ. He is the brightness, that he is the origin, that he is the place through which we see the glory of God. A good comparative text to look at this in, uh, I will feel is in Revelation uh, 21, around the latter part, where it talks about the lamb is the lamp and God is the light. I see much of the same context being used here. Uh, much of the same thought that it is through Christ that we see the radiance of the glory of God manifest to us in these last days. In the Hebrew scriptures, uh, what we're going to see is we're going to look a little bit further. We're going to touch on this concept of glory. Now, what's important to understand about God is that Isaiah 42 and 8 makes it very clear. Let's let's read it. I am the Lord. That is my name, not our name. And my glory, I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. So this radiant glory that is 
exclusively descriptive of the one true God, he makes it very clear that he does not share this stuff in the sense of his his glory or this uh, radiance. Now, glory can be used in other senses of the word uh, far as plan. But in this instance, I would see this intrinsically linked to the concept of his nature. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word glory has to do with the visible glory of God that appeared to Israel in various occasions. And from a Hebrew standpoint or a Hebrew uh, way of thought, this would be, in my opinion, the first thing that would come to mind. And I'm not going to read all the references Dr. Seagraves gives on this, but I am going to explore a, a couple of them. Let's look at Exodus uh, 16 and 10. And I'm turning my logos there for those that are listening still on YouTube. Exodus uh, 16. Let's see. Pull it up. Exodus 16 here. Exodus 16 and at verse 10. And Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israelites, and they looked toward the wilderness. There the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Praise the Lord. And the Lord spake to Moses. Let's go to Exodus 24 at verse 17. We're going to find another witness of these or, or contextually what would have been in the thought of the Hebrew listeners when they thought of glory. At verse 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in plain view of the people. Moses went into the cloud when he went up to the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. What's interesting is also this connection of glory. Then we see the connotation of fire. Now is when John the Baptist sees Jesus, what are one of the things that are significant of him? He, he saw his glory, he saw him shining, and he also saw his eyes as a light of a uh, great fire uh, that was blazing. To me, this is all Old Testament literature that speaks to the uh, glorification or the glorified state of the existing Christ. So let's go a little bit further into this uh, as we look a little bit uh, go into this study. So we see this instance of glory being given to us, that glory is definitely uh, something that is intrinsic of who God is, as we have seen. And I don't want to go too far into these references, but Let's go to one more. Let's go to 1 Kings 8 and 11, just for good measure's sake, because I always want to try to do my best to give a fair understanding. And I don't want to make sure I'm explaining what I'm saying to the best of my ability, because at the end of the day, that's the only thing you can do is your best. Uh, you know, uh, just showing up is most of the battle won, I would always say. Uh, let's look at 1 Kings 8 and 11. The priests could not carry out their, let's start at verse 10. I love this. Once the priests left the holy place, a cloud filled the Lord's temple. The priests could not carry out their duties because of the cloud. The Lord's glory filled the temple. Wow. Can you imagine such a scene? So we see the glory is the intentional manifestation of the presence of God in the midst of his people to make himself known or to make himself perceived. Since this was the glory of God, it came to represent God himself to the Jewish people. That when you talked about the glory of God, it was self-same as talking about God himself, because glory, as stated previously, was an intrinsic uh, property of God. Thus, when Paul spoke in Romans 3.23 that all humans have fallen short of the glory of God, his Jewish readers would have understood him to mean that all fall short of the measuring up to the standard of perfection exemplified by God himself. 
When James wrote that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, James 2 and 1, he meant that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Now, isn't this fascinating? I may just do a study a little bit later on uh, just the context of glory itself. Now, let's look at what the second characteristic that's described. It is the express image of his person. Jesus is the express image of God's person. The Greek word character, from which we get our English word translation character, translated express image, which means to reveal that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. The word person is translated from the Greek word hypostasis, which has to do with the substratum or that which underlies something. Here it is a reference to the essence or essential nature of God. Thus, Jesus is the exact representation of God's essence. As Paul put it, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. One way of saying it that I like is that Jesus is the visible of the invisible God. He is that which is manifest of that which is not seen. He goes on to the next characteristics that this Jesus, he uphold all things. In addition to being made God visible, Jesus Christ opposed all things by the word of his power. The phrase by the word of his power may be a Hebraism, meaning by his powerful word. Since the fullness of the Godhead, meaning essentially God's essence, continually dwells in Christ bodily, according Colossians 2 and 9, it is by him that all things consist, Colossians 1 and 17, or hold together in unity. Jesus is not only the cause and purpose of all creation, he is also the one who gives continued coherence to all things. Not only would there be, excuse me, there would have been no creation apart from him. Creation could not even be able to uh, continually exist, except now it is through Christ who sustains all things. The next he is purged our sins. The ultimate purpose of the incarnation was to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19 and 10. The cross was God's final answer to the sin problem, the means of demolishing the barrier between God and humanity. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10 and 12. This offering has been called the great exchange. Paul succinctly described the manner in which God dealt with our sins 